0: This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in his power and love even now as you listen. Open your Bibles to Luke 22. If you're new today, uh, we have been uh, walking through the gospel of, of Luke and we've been We've been planning for our study to, to conclude on Easter Sunday. And so we've got a couple of weeks left. Next week, Palm Sunday. And so by this point, Jesus is in the city of Jerusalem. We are right in the thick of the events of, of Passion Week. And so we're talking today about the night of nights. This is the night when the first Lord's Supper takes place. It's the night when Jesus is arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's the night of Peter's denials. And, and this chapter is, is absolutely uh, loaded with, with things for our souls. And so let's take a look at Luke 22. And we're going to be covering a good chunk of this chapter this morning. But I, wanna, I want us to read beginning with verse 47. Luke 22 and verse 47, and we'll read through verse 62. Luke 22, and uh, let's begin with the 47th verse. The Bible says, while he was still speaking, suddenly a mob came, and one of the 12 named Judas was leading them. He came near Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, Are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When those around him saw what was going to happen, they asked, Lord, should we strike with the sword? Then one of them struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. But Jesus responded, no more of this. And touching his ear, he healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priest, temple police, and the elders who had come for him, have you come out with swords and clubs as if I were a criminal? Every day while I was with you in the temple, you never laid a hand on me, but this is your hour and the dominion of darkness. They seized him, led him away, and brought him into the high priest's house. Meanwhile, Peter was following at a distance. They lit a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, and Peter sat among them. When a servant saw him sitting in the light and looked closely at him, she said, this man was with him too. But he denied it. Woman, I don't know him. After a little while, someone else saw him and said, You're one of them too. Man, I am not, Peter said. About an hour later, another kept insisting, This man was certainly with him since he's also a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I don't know what you're talking about. Immediately, while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. Then the Lord turned and looked at Peter So Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. Let's pray. Father, as we think about the darkness of this night, we can also think about the light of the salvation that you have given us, that because you allowed yourself to be arrested, that we can be set free. Because you allowed yourself to be taken captive, that we can experience liberation. That because you gave of yourself to to be condemned, that we can be accepted. And so, Father, as, as we plunge into the events of this night, we pray that you would help us to see the context of them, And we pray that you would teach us something about our own lives and especially in dealing with temptation. And so Father, we pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would speak to us right now as your people. And Lord, we pray that you would would help us to, to listen closely to your word, help me just to get out of the way so that you and you alone would be heard. These are critical moments together because all kinds of life change can occur when the word of God is open and the spirit of God is working through the word. And Lord, we need you. We need the life change that you provide. Lord, we need the strength that you provide. Lord, there are those here this morning that need a word of hope that you can provide. And Lord, we know that you can do it. Lord, there are those here who need the new life that comes through Jesus, and we know that you can give it. And so, Lord, speak to us right now, wherever we are, through your word, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Even today, when Jewish families celebrate Passover, a lot of times the youngest member of the family will ask the father this question. And the question is Father, why is this night different from all other nights? And the dad will, at that point, recount the events of the Exodus about how God's people were enslaved in Egypt. And, and how they were set free. They were delivered from captivity when God saw the blood of the lamb and they were set free on their way to the promised land. But you see, that exodus event has great significance for us as well because it foreshadows a new exodus because we too have been set free from Slavery, slavery to sin. We have been been set free from that slavery through the blood of the ultimate Passover lamb and we are on our way to the ultimate promised land. Now see, all of that comes rushing toward us in, in Luke 22. So what do we see here in this chapter? If you're taking notes, the the first thing that we see here is the context of Passover. The context of Passover. We really can't understand what's happening without understanding the context of Passover. Let's look at verses one and two. The festival of unleavened bread, which is called Passover, was approaching. The chief priests and the scribes were looking for a way to put him to death because they were afraid of the people. So Passover was about Death and deliverance. The death of lambs and the deliverance of a people. On this night, they remembered that that in their pain as slaves in Egypt, they had cried out to God, and God had heard their cry. And God had appointed Moses to go to the Egyptian leader, the pharaoh, and, and to speak for him. And so Pharaoh, uh, Moses goes to Pharaoh and he, and he gives Pharaoh the word from God. And the word was, let my people go. But Pharaoh refused to let them go. Even after a series of plagues, he refused to let them go. Until finally, God told Moses, I want you to approach Pharaoh one more time. And this is the word that I want you to give to him. If you don't let my people go, there's going to be a plague on the firstborn. And every firstborn Egyptian son will die, but, but the Israelites will be unharmed. And so the Bible tells us in, in Exodus 11 and verse 7, But against all the Israelites, whether people or animals, not even a dog will snarl, so that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. Now, how did God make that distinction? He told the Israelites to, to slay these unblemished lambs, one per family. And they were to sit down and they were to eat this lamb along with unleavened bread and, and bitter herbs, and they were to take some of the blood of these unblemished lambs, and they were to put the blood on the doorposts of their homes. And so Exodus 12 and verse 13 says, the blood on the houses where you were staying will be a distinguishing mark for you. God says, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No plague will be among you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And so death would pass over over their homes when God saw the blood of these lambs. But of course, none of these lambs had the power to remove sin. They could only point to the ultimate Passover lamb who could. And so John one twenty nine says, The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him, And said, here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Charles Spurgeon was a great British pastor in the the 1800s. And he pastored a church in London called the Metropolitan Tabernacle. And one time, they were doing some renovations on the sanctuary of the Metropolitan Tabernacle, and so they had to find a suitable place for the congregation to meet for several weeks. And so one of the buildings that they were looking at was a huge building in London called the Agricultural Hall. And so Spurgeon went in there one day, and the building was empty, and, and of course, in that time, there were no mics or anything, so they had to see, would the acoustics even be suitable in this place for the congregation to meet? And so Spurgeon goes into this massive agricultural hall, it, it looks empty, and he goes in and, he, and he, just, he just wants to say something to kind of test out the acoustics of the place, and so he calls out the words of John 129, and Charles Spurgeon calls out, Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world... Well, it turns out the building wasn't completely empty because there was a worker high up in the rafters. And he heard Spurgeon call out, Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And the Spirit of God used the word of God to pierce that guy's heart and just give him new life, salvation right there on the spot. That's a pretty awesome sound check, isn't it? (laughs) But how is Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? How does he take away the sin of the world? Jesus takes away the sin of the world by taking the sin of the world on himself and dying in our place as the ultimate Passover lamb And so Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Now all of this, all of this truth comes rushing at us in Luke 22. And so we see here in Luke 22 in verse 7, then the day of unleavened bread came when the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And so Jesus gathered on that night with his family, which at that point was pretty much his the 12 disciples. And so Jesus gathers with them in the upper room to eat the Passover meal, except for the meal is transformed. And on this night, when they get to the part where they they drink the cup, what does Jesus say in verse 20, Luke 22, 20? In the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. The ultimate Passover lamb. And so all of this takes place in the context of Passover. Second, we see in this chapter the crucible of temptation. The crucible of temptation. Of temptation. So, even before Jesus and the disciples conclude the first Lord's Supper and go over into the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus has given Peter a warning. Peter was sitting right beside him at the table, and Jesus leans over and he, and he gives him a warning. And the warning is this, and we see it in verses 31 through 34. Simon, Simon, look out. Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And you, when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Lord, he told him, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. I tell you, Peter, he said, the rooster will not crow today until you deny three times that you know me. Jesus uses uh, uh, an image here from farming to describe what Satan is going to do to Peter on this night. He says Satan is going to sift you like wheat. It's an image from the barley harvest, the grain harvest. And so when they separated the wheat from the chaff, the, the farmers would, would, would shake it. They would, they would sift sift that that wheat from the chaff and and Jesus says to Peter this is what Satan is going to do to you on this night you're going to be sifted you're going to be shaken you're going to be tested and you're going to fail the test and Peter is incredulous and so we see here in verse 33 that Peter says Lord I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death in other words, this could never happen to me. I would never deny you. 1 Corinthians ten twelve says, so whoever thinks he stands must be careful not to fall. Paul is probably meditating on an Old Testament scripture as he writes that. Proverbs 16 And verse 18 says, Pride comes before destruction and an arrogant spirit before a fall. To think that we are immune from any sin, the Bible says, is arrogant folly. I've shared with you before how just during the past 12 months, it's been very difficult because a couple of men that I regarded sort of as as mentors in ministry have experienced moral failure, uh, falling into temptation. Um, but listen, the 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 issue in their lives did not begin the day that they fell. No, the issue began the day that they began to allow their lives to drift from closeness with the Lord. That's when we become vulnerable. And so J.C. Ryle says this. He says, people fall in private long before they fall in public. How's your private life? Who, who are you when no one else is looking? How's your walk with the Lord? People fall in private long before they fall in public. There's a, an African proverb that puts it this way. It says, do not look where you fell. Look where you tripped. I was out running one day on a trail a few years ago. We were living in Georgia at the time, and, and I'm really glad I wasn't running with anybody that day, and I'm really glad that nobody was had their phone up and was filming me because surely they would have had a video that would have gone viral had they done so. I was running an uneven trail, and <laughs> I tripped over. I didn't know what I tripped over at the time. It turns out it was a, a tree root um, but my I'm running and the the ground is uneven anyway, and so my my foot uh, hits this root. But but then what happened after that was the funny part because I I started just stumbling like st- I mean this went on for like 20 yards more where my body is just like stumbling out of control until I'm trying to re- regain my footing. And I just end up just collapsing in a heap and, and rolling uh, after, after that. It was, it was, it was crazy. Um, and I actually, I was like, what in the world was that? So I, I went back and I, what was that I tripped on? And, and of course it was, it was this route. But when we think about like, you know, moral failure, the issue is, the issue is never just what happened when whatever it is becomes public. No, the problems were initiated further back. Look further back. The issues start when we allow our lives to begin to drift from Jesus. That's where we trip. The fall comes later. Verses 39 and, and 40, the Bible says he went out and made his way as usual to the Mount of Olives and the disciples followed him. When he reached the place, he told them, pray that you may not fall into temptation. Now this is the Garden of Gethsemane. It's a, it's a garden that's actually on the slope of the Mount of Olives and it was a, it was a special place to Jesus. And so when they leave the upper room, they cross the Kidron Valley, and and they they go to pray in the Mount of Olives. But again, Jesus issues a warning here in verse 40, doesn't he? Pray that you may not fall into temptation. Jesus is telling them to remain alert, but instead they're going to do the opposite. They're gonna fall asleep. Verses 45 and 46. When he got up from prayer, and came to the disciples. He found them sleeping, exhausted from their grief. Why are you sleeping, he asked them. Get up and pray so that you won't fall into temptation. So in all of these verses, what we're seeing is that there is a link between falling into temptation and remaining spiritually alert. And so Peter tells us in 1 Peter 5.8, Stay alert. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. It was my privilege some years ago to pastor one of the, one of the paratroopers, one of the band of brothers that dropped into Normandy the night before D-Day. In fact, in his book on D-Day, the historian Stephen Ambrose talks about my friend Ray Abisher, a godly man. And Ray was one of the first paratroopers to hit the ground on that night in Nazi-occupied France. He parachuted into a little French town called saint mire Église. Now, can, can you imagine... What that would have been like. Can you imagine being dropped out of an airplane as the airplane is being shot at, shrapnel going off all around, and, and, and dropping into a place that is, is full of Nazis behind enemy lines? Do you think you would be alert? You would, be, you would be sensitive to, to every, every whisper, every snap of a twig beneath someone's feet. You would be alert to every movement, every motion in the darkness. Well, listen, one day, Jesus is coming to liberate this earth. There's gonna be a new heaven and earth and evil's not going to be a part of it. But for right now, we're living in a fallen world. We are living behind enemy lines, so to speak. And we're to be spiritually alert. Alert. The problems begin when we get complacent and we're not spiritually alert and that's when we're vulnerable to the enemy, to temptation. The crucible of temptation. Third, the cowardice of Peter. The cowardice of Peter. When we talk about this, we're not pointing fingers at Peter. (laughs) Because Peter represents all of us. (laughs) All of us are capable of incredible cowardice. All of us are capable of shocking sin and disobedience. If we allow ourselves to drift from God. Let's look at verses 47 through 50. While he was still speaking, suddenly a mob came. And one of the twelve, named Judas, was leading them. He came near Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When those around him saw what was going to happen, they asked, Lord, should we strike with the sword? Then one of them struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. Now we know from the Gospel of John that one of them... (laughs) was none other than Peter. Peter sees this mob coming, whips out his sword, and cuts off this guy's ear in a split second. Now, isn't it crazy how the same guy who does this, the same guy who is willing to take on an armed mob and whips out his sword and cuts off a guy's ear, that this same guy, in a matter of hours, is going to completely melt down and become a coward when confronted by a little servant girl around a fire. I mean, think about that. It, it, this reminds me uh, so much what happens to what happens to Peter. It reminds me so much of a of a story from the Old Testament, and it's a story about the prophet Elijah. So the Bible tells us in First Kings eighteen that Elijah confronts the prophets of, of Baal on Mount Carmel. So there are four hundred and fifty of these false prophets that. Ahab, King Ahab and his wife Jezebel had had, had sent and they were just causing all kinds of spiritual destruction. And so Elijah, this one prophet, he confronts 450 of these false prophets on Mount Carmel, stares them down, even mocks them. And then Elijah calls down fire from heaven and the fire comes down. And then he he has all 450 of these false prophets just slaughtered. So that's 1 Kings 18. Okay, so like within hours, this is what happens. Ahab and Jezebel hear about what has happened to all of their false prophets. And so Jezebel, the king's wife, issues this threat to Elijah. Elijah. And we, we see it um, in, this is the beginning of 1 Kings 19. It says, Ahab told Jezebel everything that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, may the gods punish me and do so severely if I don't make your life like the one of them by this time tomorrow. So essentially, Jezebel hears about what has happened to all of her 450 false prophets? And so she she sends this messenger to Elijah with this threat: hey, your life is gonna become like one of those one of those false prophets. Well, you know, y- you would think that Elijah would hear this and hear just this this threat he, he, from this from this one person and sort of like. Laugh, right? I mean, you know, he hears this, this threat from Jezebel. I mean, you would think this guy would laugh, I mean, and say, hey, you know, you do know my middle name is Firecaller, right? You know, and it's gonna be scorched earth for you now. But, but what happens? It says, then Elijah became afraid and immediately ran for his life. <laughs> it says he sat down under a broom tree, and prayed that he might die. And he said, I have had enough. Lord, take my life. <laughs> same guy. Same guy, like within a day. The same guy who, who, who stares down 450 false prophets, mocks them, calls down fire from heaven, and it happens. He hears one threat and turns tail and just runs and and when he does pray he prays for god just to kill him <laughs> god didn't at that point, fortunately for him but you know again like isn't that so much like peter i mean now he was wrong to do what he did to the to the servant and uh, and jesus rebukes him for what he does and cutting off the guy's ear and then he, and then jesus heals the guy but you've got to admit i mean it takes guts right It takes guts when an armed mob is approaching to whip out your sword and take out the whole group. Peter did that. But then within hours, he's totally melted down. He's denying that he's ever known Jesus. He's challenged by one little servant girl sitting around the fire. He completely melts down and becomes a coward. So what can we learn from that? This is who we are as human beings. We are capable in one moment of trusting God and capable of of incredible courage that comes from trusting God and then in the next moment we are capable of, of, of not trusting him, of drifting from him and succumbing completely to the fear of other people and making incredibly cowardly choices. And so again, this is the warning. Stay close to Jesus. Monitor your heart, moment by moment, so that when the moment of testing comes, you're ready to make the courageous choice, the obedient choice. Verses 51 through 53, but Jesus responded, no more of this. And touching his ear, he healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, temple police, and the elders who had come for him, have you come out with swords and clubs as if I were a criminal? Every day while I was with you in the temple, you never laid a hand on me, but this is your hour and the dominion of darkness. Jesus says to them, this is your hour. But you can hear the implication there, right? Jesus is saying, this is is your hour. This night, this is your hour. But my hour is coming. My hour is coming. Sunday's coming. Empty tomb is coming. Resurrection is coming, and one day I'm coming. And evil will be a thing of the past. Verse 54, they seized him, led him away, and brought him into the high priest's house. Meanwhile, Peter was following at a distance. At a distance. That doesn't sound good, does it? It wasn't good. Are you following Jesus closely? Or at a distance? Verse 55, they lit a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together and Peter sat among them. You can almost hear an allusion here. He sat among them. You can hear an allusion here to Psalm 11. Psalm 11 where the Bible says, how happy is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked or stand in the pathway of sinners or sit the in the company of mockers. You see, Peter is sitting where he should not be sitting, and pretty soon he's going to be saying what he should not be saying and doing what he should not be doing. Verses 56 and 57. When a servant saw him sitting in the light and looked closely at him, she said, this man was with him too, but he denied it. Woman, I don't know him. Those four words he says about Jesus, I don't know him, I don't know him. Verse 58, after a little while someone else saw him and said, you're one of them too. Man, I am not, Peter said. Peter, who who had been given the, the nickname by Jesus that means rock, is turning into a jellyfish. Verses 59 and 60, about an hour later, another kept insisting, this man was certainly with him since he's also a Galilean, but Peter said, man, I don't know what you're talking about. Immediately while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed, and then it hits him, and he remembers the word of Jesus. Jesus. Before the rooster crows, you'll deny three times that you even know me. And something else hits Peter, too, in that moment. The eyes of Jesus. Verses 61 and 62. Then the Lord turned and looked at Peter. So Peter remembered the word of the Lord. How he had said to him before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. When we think about the look that Jesus gives to Peter, it was not a look of anger. It was not a look of condemnation. No, it was a look of love. J.C. Ryle says this. There was a deep meaning in that look. It was a sermon which Peter never forgot. The love of Christ toward his people is a deep well which has no bottom. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the deep, deep love that sent your son for us. The love that sent him to to take on the the failures, the sins of sinners like Peter and sinners like us so that we could be free. We thank you that you gave your son, your beloved son, to die as Passover lamb. We thank you that you can look at his shed blood on our behalf and that death can pass over us so that we can have eternal life. Condemnation can pass over us so that we can have acceptance, forgiveness in your sight. Oh, what a gospel. Oh, what good news we have in Jesus. Lord, I pray for anyone here today that has not received that good news. Anyone here today that is not trusted in the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Lord, I pray that you would open their heart to see the love of Jesus and to respond and to trust in him and welcome him into their life as their their savior, as their king. Lord, for those, those of us who know Jesus, Take us to another level in our walk with him. Lord, may there be more intimacy. We need more intimacy with Christ that we may not succumb to the ways of this fallen world, that we may not succumb to temptation. Lord, this passage is a warning to us to closely guard our hearts and stay close to our Savior. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin. But I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray. Amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1.12, To all who did receive him who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine, almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving father, and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with them.